outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 106. Today in the show, we're joined by wildlife biologist Jeremy Flynn to discuss all sorts of advice for managing your hunting property, public land hunting, and much more. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And we're back from a week-long break, and today we're joined by Jeremy Flynn, a wildlife biologist, outdoor writer, and all-around whitetail nut. And we're going to be discussing everything from ideas for better managing a deer hunting property to public land hunting advice. So kind of this whole gamut of different ways to hunt. I think it's going to be super interesting, but before we get Jeremy on... Dan, it's been a couple weeks, so I figure we should catch up. Is there uh, anything new, new in your deer hunting world? I finally got out and checked one trail camera that I had sitting over a month, and uh, I, ha- I have at least one shooter from last year who's back. Nice. And I, I, I can't tell who he is if it's a buck I called Dork, who is just like this gigantic bodied uh, three-year-old or excuse me, he's probably a six or seven-year-old this year and then, or Mark Kenyon. Ooh. So they both kind of have split brows. So it's hard to tell at this point. I'm not, you know, I don't study their facial features and their coats. And I, I, I set my, uh, my trail camera up a little too high last time. So I'm not getting their heads when it's down in the mineral station. Mm. So it's kind of hard to get, uh, and accurate, so I had to adjust that. What how what day what date did you get those pictures on? Oh geez. Um well let me pull up I got a I'm on my computer right now and that date is the date of the big boy was five twenty one. So May twenty first. So how much yeah. antler growth did, did he have at that point? Well, let's see here. Um he's got a noticeable split on his main beams. He's got uh, probably 10 to somewhere in between the 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 8 to 12 range for brow t- or for main beams. He's got uh, uh, 
the G2 and the that's about it. It's just a bump. So, so when you said the split, do you mean they're split on the brow tine? You mean? Yeah, the brow tine. Yeah, Both the one of brow tine, just, just one, and it looks like I don't know. You, you see some of those brow tines where it grows up the main beam just a little bit, and then you have other brow tines that look like they're coming straight off of the base. Right. Right. So this this buck has one of each hmm. on this picture. So I think it's if I had to guess, I'd say it's this buck I call Dork. He's just a real tight racked, really massed out, thick, uh, like three hundred pound buck. Jeez, this 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 is reminding me of last year. The, this is the beginning of my struggling summer while I listen to you talk about trail camera pictures and velvet bucks, <laughs> and I I just have to imagine what might be on my properties. I'm jealous. Right, right. So uh, yeah, I mean, I got like let's see one. Two, three, four, five, six. I got six trail cameras out on Saturday. I have another one on another farm, and I got two or three more to put out on another farm yet. So um, I'm behind the eight ball as far as uh, getting mineral out and get them coming to the minerals concerned. Well, hey, sounds like you have a lot of options eventually. I know, but that's the good thing, right? So yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I just love, I love these summer months. It's just like the, this is like that season of anticipation. Like checking the pictures gets you a little more excited every single week, and the antlers grow a little bit more, and you start to slowly figure out, you know, what deer in the area, who's back, and oh my gosh, I, I, uh, I'm stoked. I got a couple cameras out back in Michigan, a couple in Ohio, and now I just have to wait a few months till I get home and check them, but. Uh, can't wait to see that's yep. for sure i tell you what so based on the crop rotation it wasn't last year but the year before i had my best trail year of trail cameras ever so that would have been what 2014 crop rotation and so we're back in that crop rotation this year and uh you know there's tons of little young bucks you know this this bachelor bachelor group of like five bucks is in coming to this uh, mineral site all the time. Nothing, nothing giant, maybe three-year-olds and younger, but that same year it happened the same way. So the first of August is when I started blowing up as far as all these giants. Like, I think it, I remember talking to you about had like six shooters over, mm -hmm. over five, even over five years old, five years old or older. So hopefully they stick around. Logging's done this year knock on wood. So, right. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, but that's, that's not really important right now. The, what's important is my extreme jealousy for where you are and what you're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I, I guess I'm saying I'm jealous about your pictures, but, uh, I can't complain too much, I suppose. Yeah. I just made the drive last week. The reason why we didn't have the podcast last week was because I drove my wife and I and our dogs headed out for our summer out West again. We're doing it again this year. So, Ooh, we drove through Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, Montana, and then down into Idaho. So we're staying here in Idaho for the next month. And uh, so far, the last eight days, we've been here eight days, I think, and I have either hiked or fly fished every single day so far. So I'm trying to keep that streak going as long as I can. I don't know if it'll happen tonight, but I'll try to maybe get out for a little hike because uh, it's been fun. 
It's been a lot of fun. Beautiful, beautiful country. So I, I just every time you open your mouth, I want to just like <laughs> just punch me in the face. Oh, it's not. It's not even like it's like that on the movie. Uh, what movie? Step Brothers. Where he's like, <laughs> I want to punch you right in your mouth. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what it is about you telling spreading your good news makes me so jealous. Like I want to be in the mountains or. Even just outside, but instead I uh, see made in China signs all day. Uh, yeah, I know. We were talking earlier about uh, the 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 doldrums of cubicle life. I know that um, slowly can kill your soul. That definitely did it to me. So I, uh, like I said earlier, I, if I could, I'd just give you a great big hug right now, Dan. I really would. <laughs> I'd accept it too because I need it. Oh, man. Well, one of these summers, you've got to pack up the kids and the family and, and come and visit us out here. Do yep. some hiking, kayaking, fishing. Got to show the me how gotta, to fly fish. Yeah. It's, I, I can't say I'm a good teacher because I'm just still learning. But just in the couple, you know, last summer learning and now this summer again, while I'm not good at it, I, I sure found it addicting. It's, it's like the bow hunting version of fishing i feel like for me it's like as bow hunting is to regular deer hunting fly fishing is to regular fishing it's kind of what i've been finding it's just i don't know another level of intricacy and strategy and like uh i don't know it's difficult but really really like engaging and captivating like i just find myself all of a sudden i've been out there five hours i'm like whoa where'd the time go i just feel like i just got here right so Haven't caught a whole lot yet this summer, just a couple, but uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. Have have you uh, gotten your uh, plaid shirt and pipe yet? No pipe. I'm rocking the plaid shirt on occasion. Okay. But uh, I haven't had. I have not found a pipe to my liking yet, Dan. But one of these days I will. I know it's. I know it's hard, but just do me a favor and with words paint me a picture of some of the views that. And this is going to satisfy me for maybe 30 or 40 minutes, <laughs> but just like a couple real quick sentences, maybe one sentence of how beautiful it is out there and it will make me more jealous. Yeah. So I'll describe to you this setting. The other day I was fishing the Snake River, which is this beautiful river that runs along the base of the Grand Tetons. Uh, so you just have this wide, maybe 100 yard wide river that's just flowing nice kind of bubbling brook type sounds you hear the water going over the rocks you've got a moose standing on the opposite shore looking around and then as you gaze up you've got the sun setting behind these three peaks the cathedral peaks of the of the teton range there, just jagged it's the most like dramatic skyline of mountains i've ever seen and it's just like a like a sawtooth blades up and down up and down across the sky with those beams of sun they're just starting to hide behind it coming over so much i don't know if you've ever seen that when you've you can see the actually you can actually see the the rays of light coming over something whether it be trees or in this case mountains those rays of light are actually coming down reaching down right down to the river in front of me and that that right there's a pretty good day that didn't make me feel (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Get yourself a plane ticket. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to talk my wife and, and kids into moving into one of those teeny houses. Mm-hmm. Where <laughs> you ever seen that documentary, Tiny House? Oh, yeah. There's a whole TV show on it now. Oh, I love it. It's 
badass. Yeah, I've been trying to do the same thing, trying to convince my wife who could do it. Because, I mean, I always say if you downsize your payments, you can upsize your life. That's like my, my new philosophy is like trying to cut other costs on things that we don't really need so that we can go do the stuff we want to do. So right. that's one of those things like, gosh, if you could cut your house payment down, you can travel more, do different things, work less. I don't know. Um, okay. It's kind of a, a fun idea to think about at least. So we have got to get our guest on the line now, but I believe you've got to run because you're on, you're on baby duty today, right? Right. I'm on a different schedule uh, as far as today because we're recording a different time. But uh, I got in for the uh, intro just to catch up with you, and uh, I guess I'll be back next week at our regularly, regularly scheduled programming time. Yes. Well, I appreciate you hopping on for a little bit, Dan, and we're going to take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear, and then we will get our guest on the line. So as we do every week, we've got a Sitka story for you, and today it's from Mike Mansell, who last year focused an enormous amount of effort trying to get a shot at a buck he'd been after for several years prior. In 2015, he manipulated his property and food plots and tree stands, all with the goal of getting a shot at this dandy four-and-a-half-year-old nine-pointer. And then... Finally, one day in December, it all came together, and the buck appeared in shooting range. The only problem? Mike had already filled his tag on another deer, so he couldn't shoot. I mean, it was it was upsetting at first, but it was probably one of the most rewarding feelings because all the work that we put in to harvest that particular deer and just seeing that it, it would have worked, given if I had a tag at the time, um, it was it's pretty special. Uh, it was it was pretty cool to see it where it actually would have panned out. So, how do you feel with this coming year? How excited are you to get another shot at him? I'm I'm pretty stoked. Um, I think we got a really good chance at him. So, be honest with me. How many times have you thought about that deer already this year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's yeah. I've I've looked at the the pictures, the trail camera photos, the video, the encounter several times. Are you? He's already on my mind, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to sleep much this fall. <laughs> <laughs> For good reason. Hopefully we'll have a part two to this sickest story as Mike takes another crack at his buck in 2016. But back to that 2015 encounter. On that hunt, Mike was wearing a Sitka gear jacket, Fanatic hoodie, and the Equinox pants. If you'd like to learn more about what Sitka gear options might be right for you, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and give our guest, Jeremy Flynn, a call. All right, with us now on the line is Jeremy Flynn. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Appreciate it, Mark. Yeah, I, I, I've been reading a lot of things from you over the past few years and have thought to myself over and over again, I've got to talk to Jeremy someday. We've got to have him on the show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really glad this is finally happening. Thanks for making this happen, Jeremy. Um, I appreciate it, man. Like I said, I've been a big fan of the podcast, listened to a lot of them over the years, and, and kind of as we were discussing, any day is a good day to talk to you. Yeah, I, I haven't found a day yet that's not a good one to talk about this topic. So <laughs> so I guess with that said, though, before we get too far, for those that aren't familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of background as to you know how you got to where you are now and what you're doing today in relation to, to deer? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I grew up in, in western Pennsylvania, which coincidentally is uh, where I'm at right now. It's kind of been a full circle ride for me. Um, did my undergrad at Penn State University in wildlife, um, worked 
you know, numerous jobs and internships doing whitetail deer research and kind of always knew I needed to go to the next level. Um, and so in 2007, I started doing my master's degree uh, at Mississippi State University. Spent three years in Mississippi um, doing research on trail cameras and, and aging and scoring deer from photographs was kind of my big background there. And, you know, some people that may be listening to the podcast in, in 2010, 11, and 12 might remember BuckScore, um, which was a computer software that was out for a while. And, and that was one of uh, the derivatives of my research when I was at Mississippi State. Um, and so kind of leaving Mississippi State, I spent several years managing that program and that company, um, only to end up at Cabela's uh, about three years ago and uh, ran the Midwest and Northeast sections for their wildlife and land management division. And uh, kind of going through on that, you know, Cabela's was a great opportunity for me to, to expand my horizons as a deer biologist, and uh, but really found my passion to be working kind of on my own as a as not only a wildlife consultant, but got into growing businesses um, when I was in my software days, and and now kind of my main focus is uh, running my company and being the marketing officer for Stone Road Media. Um, and we do a lot of marketing for hunting organizations, uh, both television shows as well as manufacturing companies. And then we also operate the Buck Advisors, which is basically our wildlife management arm, which we produce a lot of video content for uh, these companies, but also providing good informational and educational pieces for just kind of the average deer hunter. Um, you know, maybe the guys who own big properties, but, but a lot of times it's, it's guys who have small properties or, or even hunting public land. So you've got, you've got such a cool set of experiences. There's so many different things that sound like super, super interesting to, to be involved in, but I want to go all the way back to school. What was it like going to school for deer related stuff? I mean, that sounds like a dream come true for most people. <laughs> It, you know, and it was, man. I mean, I remember growing up and it was kind of funny. I, I felt like I was in that position where that's the only thing that I really wanted to do. And, you know, for for a lot of people thinking about it, you know, you kind of wonder, you know, what do you do with that kind of an education? And, and really, it, there's probably a lot of people who maybe listening to this and even in school that are asking themselves that same question. I mean, what what do you do with that career? And and the, the hard facts are is that there aren't a ton of opportunities once you get out of school. Um, so you've got to make sure that while you're in it to maximize it more than just the, the educational level. And what I mean by that is experience is everything. Um, and so it was a, such a cool opportunity to get involved and be in wildlife. But then it was almost scary to know that there's so much competition for so few jobs and, and call me stubborn. And, and a lot of people did when I was in school, but I, you know, I just wanted to work with deer. You know, I love turkey hunting. I love grouse hunting. I love, I love trout fishing. You know, at the end of the day, I just wanted to work with deer. And, and you think about on a landscape level, uh, even across the country, there's not a ton of jobs that work with deer. Um, you know, you got a handful of state biologists that maybe work with deer um, on a federal level, very few, if any, um, because it's such a state-managed species. And then on the private sector, you know, few and far between, especially outside of Texas and most of the major ranches. So it was a cool experience, but, 
it, it also was scary to know, to think about where is it going to lead to um, once school was over. And yeah, I had some really good guidance, I think, that pointed to if you really want to make an impact um, and try to go somewhere, you know, master's was what I needed to do and, and really to leave the, my home state of Pennsylvania. That was the first time I really had to go outside of that state and be gone for an extended period of time. Uh, that was probably the hardest part of it. Yeah, I can imagine. So once you did go to Matt to get your master's at Mississippi State, I think you'd said you were mm-hmm. researching and, and working on this project related to aging and scoring bucks, right? What what, what were the yeah. major takeaways that you came that you came out of that experience with? What did you learn about aging and scoring bucks? Was there any major take home message? Yeah, you know, the the cool thing about it, I mean, everything dealt around photography. And I mean, even though we did some handheld, you know, photographs, you know, 90% of what we studied were trail camera pictures. And, and to this day, I'm still a trail camera junkie, just like you, you know, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. one of those things that it's like Christmas, you know, every day that you want to check trail cameras, you never know what you're going to have on. And we were just looking at some pictures here on a new property I have in Pennsylvania with red fox all over the place. And, you know, even though it's not deer, it's just really cool to see that kind of stuff. So um, I think that it's in the grand scheme of things to to know that you're looking at a picture and you're trying to identify age or antler size. Um, the major takeaways that we found, um, we studied mostly southeastern deer, but then we really started expanding it, you know, across the northeast and midwest was that although deer, you know, like in Saskatchewan, maybe bigger than deer in in some parts of the coast of Mississippi or or even Florida, we found that they were mostly proportionally larger on an aging standpoint. So even though you look at that fully rutted out buck um, from Alberta or, or even Wisconsin, and you're like, man, deer doesn't even have a neck on them, it proportionally is still the same size as a Florida deer would be. Um, So if you took measurements of the neck and compared it to the chest or took chest measurements and compared it to the stomach girth, as long as you were looking within the same age classes, they were proportionally larger. Um, And I thought that was a big take home message because, you know, a lot of people have trouble aging deer from different regions of the country because, you know, of nutrition, especially you think, wow, the deer in the Midwest are just, you know, eating crops all year long and they're putting on weight, but really your eyeballs should be trained to look at different proportions than anything else. Interesting. So what would you say then? I imagine given all this work you did, you probably came away with some, some, some helpful, maybe guidelines or steps to trying to age deer on the hoof, whether it be in person mm-hmm. or on trail cameras, would there be anything you could share with us now in regards to how you go about trying to make those, you know, estimates now? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we, we looked at so many different variations of, of different features on the deer compared to each other, you know, still uh, to the, to the day, probably the chest girth is obviously a big indicator, especially as related to, the stomach girth. Um, so, you know, when people think about that classic three-year-old like thoroughbred racehorse look, obviously that's because you're looking for that deep chest, but not necessarily filled out in the stomach girth um, as it would get closer to a four-year-old or then even a five-year-old when we're starting to look at the sag of the stomach. Um, so that, that definitely was a big indicator. Um, the neck girth, so both at the base and up towards the jawline, actually. So you think about a young one or two-year-old buck that, you know, almost looks as thin as a doe up around the jawline uh, 
where the neck would meet that area. And you get into that three, four, and five-year-old age class, even in the pre-rut, there's just a definitive difference um, in that size. So I think that physical feature-wise, those those are two of the bigger areas or comparisons that we looked at. And, you know, a lot of people still, and, and even as a biologist, I say, you know, don't look at the antlers, obviously, for age. Um, but what we did find is one of the most definitive age classifications, especially when you bring in like the chest or the neck into play as looking at the deer overall was the basal circumference. You know, as that basal circumference increased, regardless of what was above it, whether it was a six point or a 12 point, um, you know, whether it was a 110 inch buck or 170 inch buck, that basal circumference played a huge role in us being able to um, separate age classes. Um, so, you know, we were looking at it as a, on a very micro level. I mean, we were actually using uh, measurement tools to, to measure that basal circumference in a picture. Um, but, you know, visually you can tell as well. You know, you can tell the difference between a two-year-old that's really thin and a four-year-old that's starting to put some mass on the circumference. Yeah, so, so the basal circumference, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking just about the mass, the circumference of the antler right yep. at the base, right? Right at the base. Yep. So, you know, obviously you can probably extrapolate that and say, well, you know, thicker mass at the base is going to lead to a better mass measurement overall for a Boone and Crockett score. And then so Boone and Crockett score probably plays a factor in age and it does, but, you know, really just that basal circumference when we would look at that measurement individually um, and, and again, bringing in the factors of the neck and the chest girth and the stomach girth, all of those together really was what separated age classes out the best for us on a measurement standpoint. Yeah, makes sense. It's one of those things trying to age deer on the hoof or on pictures. You know, it's not a, I mean, it's not a 100%, you know, down pat science, but it sure is a lot of fun trying no. to trying to figure it out and using these types of it guidelines. It, it's so tough too. I mean, you know, really, like I tell everyone, when you get to the, even like this time of the year, I mean, deer still look ragged. They're not nearly as, as thick as they're going to be in another yeah. two months. I mean, that pre-rut time period is about the most consistent you're going to get, you know, because once you get into the peak, right, I mean, different deer are going to develop muscular better or, or worse than other deer in the same age class. Um, so you tend to get the most consistent in that pre-rut. And then when it gets to the post-rut, I mean, that's a whole different ball game. I mean, yeah. depending on food source, how worn down from the rut, you know, uh, lots of factors playing into that. But it is, it, it's, it is more of just training yourself. And like I tell everybody, I mean, it, it's harder for the guys who hunt multiple places across the country. But the ones that are really sticking to a local area or even a single property, I mean, train yourself on those deer and, and really just try to stay consistent. It's like doing a camera survey. You, know, you may not know the definitive number of deer every year on that property, but as long as you're monitoring the trend. So if you stay consistent saying these are all three-year-olds, then these are all four-year-olds in your eye, and that's what you're, you know, you're going to be fairly close within a year or so. Um, so that in itself is going to help you develop a better herd overall. Um, if you try to always say, well, I'm not going to shoot, you know, three-year-olds this year. I'm only going to shoot four-year-olds. And you're very rarely going to be 100% accurate. There's going to be three-year-olds that look like four-year-olds. There's going to be four-year-olds that look like three-year-olds. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the name of the game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so speaking of that type of situation, you know, hunting a specific property, managing it for, for a certain age class, um, 
if I, I think I, I think I saw that you just recently bought a piece of property. Is that right? You, you just started your own farm. I did. I did. I've got so you know after being in in the well, I lived in the Midwest for the last five years. Um, I moved back to to my home state about an hour south of where I grew up. And uh, we've got just a small piece, just under 30 acres right at the base of the mountain. So for sure, not the Midwest fertile soils that we were dealing with in Missouri, but, uh, you know, definitely a cool piece to, to start from scratch essentially and, and really build up into, you know, more of a hunting property and, and a wildlife viewing property for my wife and my kids. I mean, the, my wife loves to hunt. I can't wait to get my kids out in the woods and start hunting. You know, it's a, it's a cool opportunity to start something from scratch, but also as, as anyone who has property knows that regardless of size, it's always work. Yeah. Yeah. But like you said, a lot of fun to be able to do that work on your own little piece of little piece of paradise, right? It's, it's a dream come true, man. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't imagine how long it's been that I've thought about having my own piece of dirt that, you know, I could call my own, I could put my own food plot in, I could shoot my own deer over, you know, and, and I know obviously everything's public resource at the end of the day when we talk about wildlife, but, you know, you definitely look at things a little different when it's your own property. Um, you know, even, I mean, I've leased tons of property in the past. It's, it's a completely different feeling to know that, you're responsible for that piece of dirt. You, you definitely become protective of it. I can tell you that. I probably have more trail cameras up for trespassers than I do have for wildlife. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it, but, it, but it is a neat thing to have and, and to experience, especially with the kids growing up. Yeah. So, so when you've got a piece of property like this, you know, when you're just starting out and you, you, you go into this, it sounds like you went into this with the goal of creating a, a deer hunting property, a better deer hunting property mm-hmm. than it is today. How do you start that process? Like what are the things you're thinking about or taking, you know, taking inventory of, or, or where does that process begin? So, uh, you know, the first thing that I do is that I go to maps uh, right away, you know, before I even step foot on a piece of ground, um, and a couple of things I'm looking for. One, you know, aerial views. I'm, I'm looking to see the lay of the land. Um, in particular, what's surrounding the, the property. So, you know, like I said, I've got just under 30 acres, which you know, most people are thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's barely anything to, to hunt. You know, the way that it lays out is 30 acres of all timber, you know, basically decides where my house is at, um, which is probably a little over an acre, acre and a half of open ground. Everything else is solid woods. Um, it's a very rugged terrain, um, lots of deep cuts in the hillsides, um, steep through the middle. So, I mean, if you, if you look at it over top and you think, wow, that's, that's 30 acres, if you legged it, you know, it may hunt 60 or 90 acres um, just because of how much topography is actually there. So that's one thing that I always like to look at is that overall, but even more so than that um, is what's surrounding my property. Um, you know, if it's a 30 acre island in the middle of, of a you know, residential community or something, then it's, it's one thing. You know, the opportunity to, to have that kind of stuff nearby and, and just, you know, see what the deer movement would be relative to the properties around you makes a big difference. For, for instance, my property, I border about 200,000 acres of privately owned timberland from a paper company. Uh, and then there's a public state game land that even borders that. So, you know, if you wanted to say how contiguous is your property, it's probably approaching a half a million acres. Um, so you never know what's going to end up 
in the in the property, even though it's only 30, um, because of what's surrounding you. So I would say number one is I go to the maps. That's going to give you the best view of the not only what your property has and its and its benefits, its advantages and disadvantages, but what's the potential around it, um, because that's obviously going to affect it, especially smaller landowners. Yeah. So, so when you look at your property right now and you think about that question, you look at the high level view and you say, what does my property have? What does it not have? What are the advantages and disadvantages? What did you actually, what was the answer to that question when you answered it after looking at this? So, so obviously the big one was that I had a ton of privately held land that bumped right up next to my property. Um, and then even the public land next to that, knowing that there probably would be some pressure on top of the mountain and, and I'm at the base. So naturally we see a lot of wildlife kind of migrate down off the hills as the season progresses, not only from hunting pressure, but weather as well. Um, so that was one big thing that I saw. The one that I really thought was a a big advantage to mine and to some people wouldn't be is the property was logged out um, in the early 2000s, taking everything basically eight inches in in diameter and under. Um, And so, and today it's, it's thick. Um, I mean, it's, it's navigable. You can get through it. There's still some big timber. We've got some big oaks on the property and and American beach that'll produce some good hard mass but the amount of greenbrier and cover compared to the mature timberland that basically surrounds it, I saw as a huge advantage. Um, not only is embedding, but I've told everybody from the start, if I can see deer in this time of the year where there's food everywhere, when we get to the fall and it's all relying on hard mass and then even into the winter when we're talking about all natural browse, this property is gonna just be loaded with deer. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen a lot of deer on the property, bachelor groups moving through already in this late spring when home ranges are pretty small. But I think as we get into the fall and the hard mass, and then they rely more on the natural browse, with these big closed canopy forests uh, basically surrounding it, these deer are going to be just sucked into this property because there's so much natural browse for them, which is always a huge benefit to me. I mean, that's no matter where you're at, I don't care if you're in the Midwest or you're in the Northeast number one food source for the deer is going to be the natural browse. Yeah. So were there any major uh, gaps that you saw or major issues that you saw when you're starting to look at it? Is there anything that you're like, okay, this I need to fix? Well, I mean, the, the number one in, in my lovely home state of Pennsylvania is, is always trespassing. I mean, we've got such a high number of hunters in the state, high density. Um, there's quite a few houses that border my property. And, and I'm sure, um, based on the previous landowners not being hunters, that there'll be quite a few people dabbling in on my property this year. And I expect that, you know, the first couple of years, it's just going to be a lot of monitoring and, and laying down the law, um, you know, knowing that somebody is actually there to enforce trespassing on the property. Um, you know, that's something that every landowner deals with. So the one thing that I thought was going to be the hardest and still is to this day, and, and I'll be honest, I haven't even quite figured it out myself, is access. Um, when you've got 20, 29 acres of, of solid timber, and basically there's two main access points, where one where my house is and one that uh, is a little piece of road frontage completely on the opposite end, it's, it's hard to navigate through there. There are some old logging roads, but because it's so thick at any given point, you could, you could essentially come through a bedding area. So I think the big challenge, 
you know, even through the first few seasons is going to be figuring out where the definitive betting areas or do I need to create more definitive betting areas? Not necessarily because there's a lack of betting on the property, but more so that I can kind of pattern deer to be able to navigate to my tree stand in and out more efficiently. Right. That makes a lot of sense. If you can't, if you can't naturally figure out where those opportunity areas are to get in there un, unnoticed, you can encourage deer to go certain places where you can avoid. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's a great yeah, idea. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's, that's one of the hardest things that I think any property I mean, really deals with, but maybe even has the lack of knowledge on is, is, you know, what's the effect of going in and out? I mean, just by nature, we're, we're going to take the path of least resistance, you know, whether that's a logging road or, or ag field, it doesn't matter. Um, and we don't necessarily think thoroughly of where those deer are going to be during the entrance and exit time to those stands. And, you know, I think with the heavily timbered ground, especially when it's very, even though there's a little bit difference in the habitat type, deer literally could be bedding everywhere. And I mean, I've jumped them in 10 different places on that property that it's like, how am I going to congregate these deer in an area that lets me navigate through a little bit more? Mm-hmm. So how have you tried to go about figuring this property out? You, you, you haven't hunted it, right? This is your first spring owning it. Correct. Yeah. We literally just moved in about two months ago. So okay. it's like fresh off the fresh out the gate for sure. Yeah. So, so what have you been doing so far to try to start figuring it out and what are your plans for the next couple of months leading up to the hunting season? Just to, you know, this is your first season how do you establish that base knowledge? You know, the again, the maps are, are really critical on that. Um, you know, the second thing, and, and I try to do it as carefully as possible, is, is just straight navigation and, and legging out the property. Um, it's been really hard to try to figure out how to get in there and get out of there without moving deer. And I know a lot of people are extremely sensitive of, of putting pressure on the herd. Um, but at this time of the year, I'm always one of those people that I don't, I don't want to put a lot of pressure on them, but I also don't think that it hurts to walk through a property. If you bump a deer here or there at the end of the day, you know, four months from now, it's probably not going to make a big difference. Um, you know, as we get closer to the season, July, August, then I'm a little bit more concerned. You know, I don't want to be pushing deer around when I'm a couple months out from the season. I want them to settle in. I want them to feel comfortable. Um, but I do try to get out there and, and move through the property as much as possible, especially with the terrain that we have. I mean, there's there's funnels and gaps and saddles all through there, um, you know, and even locating some of the remnant big oak trees through there to figure out where some of these hard mass hot spots are going to be. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, you know, also just being a big trail camera nut, you know, we've got five cameras i think out right now on on 30 acres and i'm sure it'll probably double by the time hunting season gets here um again it's figuring out not only patterns on the deer that are currently existing but but just seeing what's out there i mean i'll be honest in in that part of the country i expected to see maybe some you know does moving through at this time of the year a couple small bucks or something we had a bachelor group uh, a week ago show up and one of them was probably just a young two-year-old. There's one buck I think that could probably be a decent three, and another one that's probably a good three-year-old too. He was already way out past the years with a split brow on one side, you know, nice. and that was the last part of May. So, you know, for being what I would consider a pretty solid mountain deer, I mean, there's no ag, there's nothing around. Um, now my thinking starts to say, well, maybe these deer are able to get some age on them because they've got so much room to roam. 
So can I increase the habitat and the nutrition to now factor that piece in? And if I can, I mean, sky's the limit. I mean, I could produce 150 or 60 inch deer potentially on that property, which will blow a lot of people's minds around here, but they won't know it until after the harvest. Right. That's, <laughs> that's pretty exciting just to be able to have that potential out there though. I got to mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. you mentioned, you know, possibly improving the nutrition are typically when mm-hmm. you either, either, you know, in this case, starting your own property or when you're advising someone else who's on a new place, do you, do you usually go into that first year and make habitat improvements just right out the gate, just based on what you see? Or do you like to wait a hunting season, observe, learn, and then the next year with that knowledge, start making changes? I try to always look at the low hanging fruit, Mark. I mean, really where's, where do I think the most limiting factor is? Um, habitat is one that I'm, I'm more cautious on just because any changes or significant changes to the natural habitat could take, multiple years to recover if it's not the right move um you know food plots is a different thing if i say hey you know here's a wildlife opening not growing anything but some annual you know food during the summer or late spring let's convert this into a fall food plot as well or a late season food plot you know that's something that i'm a little bit you know more apt to pull the trigger on right away the habitat's a different beast. I mean, you know, I look at a lot of different things. I mean, typically you can walk into a piece of property and see a browse line or a closed canopy with no natural food on the ground and, and know pretty quick what you need to do. But then again, you start going in and, and cutting down 60, 70 year old oak trees to open up the canopy and you don't know how that's going to affect the deer. You don't know how that's going to affect the movement. Um, and, and it's a significant you know, mark on the natural habitat. It's not going to be fast to replace those trees if for some reason it was the wrong move. So I think that you definitely have to have a good grasp on what's going on. Um, I do think that probably 90% of the people that I've worked with and including my own property, the first thing to do would be to increase the natural food as well as maybe something supplemental like food plots. Um, You know, and, and it's, it's usually adding more food is never a hard thing. It's just, what are you going to do to add the food? Are you going to do a prescribed fire? Are you going to open up the canopy? Are you going to plant a food plot? Um, a lot of that depends on the property and a lot of that depends on the property owner in terms of what their limited resources are. You know, if they don't have any equipment, we're not going in there and planting a four acre clover plot. Um, so it, it definitely depends on what they have and what the property's availability is to, to increase that natural food or that supplemental food. Um, but, you know, I think on mine, I'll probably be fairly conservative. I, I'm pretty confident in the native food. So I'll definitely let that go through the year and, and see where it ends up um, in the wintertime. My gut is I'm actually probably going to be pulling in a lot of deer and have the potential to really put a put a negative effect on my natural habitat over time. Um, so I think there's there's an old log landing that I'm going to look at doing a perennial food plot. Again, I don't have the best soil at all. In fact, most of it's old shell and, and rock. Um, so I'm going to try to put in something that I can get established and only have to maintain over multiple years. It's, it's definitely not the type of soil that you want to come in and have to disc or till every year because it's going to get nasty after a couple of years. You're basically going to lose all your topsoil. 
So in that type of situation, what are you thinking? Like a, a perennial clover probably or something else? Yep, definitely. That's that's what I think I'll go in with, the perennial clover. Um, I, I typically in the first year want to have an annual clover in the mix just because it's going to grow a little bit faster and establish itself ahead of the perennials. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more, more for erosion control, if anything. Um, but definitely keeping ahead of the browse line for the deer. Um, so I'll, I'll probably have that. And then, you know, I'll, I may let that reseed out a first year or something, but then just maintain it for the next three or four years as a perennial clover. Uh, every once in a while, depending on what it looks like, I could go in there and, you know, broadcast some kind of brassica or, or sugar beet or something like that in it. If I think that the late uh, season needs some additional forage, but I, I still think you can't go wrong with a perennial clover as long as you maintain it correctly. Yeah. So on the food plot topic, given the fact you've worked with a number of people all, all across the country, it sounds like, wow, if there's any main issue or mistake that you see a lot of people make when it comes to food plots, what would that be? Say first and foremost, and, and it's always a, it's a topic that we deal with every day. We're involved with a, a couple different food plot companies, and, and one of those is a company called Deer Grow that we started about three years ago. But taking soil samples, um, no matter where you are, I don't I don't care if you're in the river bottoms of Iowa, uh, having that knowledge of what the soil is, current status is, and, and really more so what the plants are going to need. I mean, we think about the soil and, and amending the soil to appeal to the plant, but a lot of times it depends on what plant you're putting in. You know, there's a big difference between putting corn in there, which is going to suck the soil dry of nitrogen, and putting soybeans in, which is going to fix nitrogen. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest misses out there is taking a soil sample, even on a food plot, you know, whether it's brassica, oats, clover. Um, that, that's a big factor. It, Along with that, though, and, and likely what I would say the biggest mistake made is not putting a food plot enclosure or exposure cage on it to see what the food plot's potential was without deer browsing. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure you've seen it. How many times you walk up to a food plot and somebody says, well, you know, seed failed or weather was bad. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it was because the deer just mowed it to the ground. And if you had a cage on it, you'd be able to look inside there and see, you know, six, eight inch beautiful clover and on the outside bare dirt because <laughs> they ate it down to the ground. Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge indicator and it's something that far too often is, is overlooked uh, by food plotters today. That's a great point. Now, I think I remember seeing when you were doing some of the, the work with Cabela's, you were doing some food plot work over on Bill Winkie's property. Is that right? Yep. Well, Absolutely. Yep. Did a lot of food plots on Bill's property. So I'm just kind of curious from like a, a fan of Bill Winkie's deer hunting success out <laughs> there. What what kind of food plot system did you guys have in place there? What was he doing and why why were you guys doing that? You know, Bill had a really good uh, food plot. First of all, he, he did one of my favorites, which is he planted a lot of summer crops and he left them up all year long. And I know for, for most of the people out there, anybody that harvests a yield and thinks about Iowa and, and leaving, you know, soybean or corn up for deer probably is, is just shaking their head. But, you know, it, it was an amazing thing. I mean, it's probably one of the biggest things that I do. I love planting, especially soybeans. I love planting soybeans in the summer, having that protein available all summer for, you know, growing bucks, but also fawns and does lactating. Um, and then you kind of it taper off 
you know, as you get into that first part of the season when acorns start falling. And then about, you know, at least in most of my areas that I've dealt with and in, in around mid-November to late November uh, through the end of the year and, and even into early spring, having that ability to have, you know, pods above the snow line um, through where food is so scarce, it's an amazing source of nutrition. Um, and that was one thing that Bill did very well, leaving, leaving those crops standing in, in small sections too. It wasn't that he left 60 acre fields available for them. You know, he, he had smaller sections, some areas he did harvest. Um, and then he had a very good balance of fall annuals. Um, typically we would, we would plant a lot of, uh, brassicas, um, he had a lot of turnips in the ground. Uh, and then having perennials, he would have perennial clover in, in certain areas. So his balance was good. What Bill was really smart with was some of the areas were, that were the most hard to access um, during hunting even. Uh, but really, just in general, he would always put in a, in a good perennial. And he knew that he could leave that down there. And even if he didn't get down there to manage it very well, there would always be a good food source year-round in those spots. And, and we saw that in an area he called the tube um, where he killed the, the WD four bucks uh, yeah. a couple years ago, that buck would hang, just hang down in that clover uh, all the time. And it was a space that basically you did not want to have to go into. So to think that he could stay out of there, you know, through the summer, knowing that was his range, you know, maybe look for sheds every, you know, in the winter for a little bit, but just, stay out of that area and know that there'll be nutrition down there to hold him in that area. I thought that was a, a really smart plan by him, but I love Bill's aggressiveness on the, on the summer plots for literally the entire hunting season. I mean, how many times do you see him hunting over standing beans or corn, probably more than over fall annuals. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's awesome to be able to have that type of situation where he's able to do that and have the equipment and have the land and everything. And one mm -hmm. of the things I always, you know, I got to believe one of the challenges of, it's a good problem to have, I guess, but the, one of the challenges when you have as much land as he might have and the ability to put in as much food, the trick is how do you hunt large food sources or all these different food sources? You know, it's kind of easy when you're on a 40-acre piece and you've got one half-acre food plot. Well, you know that yep. if you hunt that little food plot, there's going to be some, you know, you're going to be within shooting range or something like that. But when you're in a situation like Bill's, it seems like there's a lot more thought that has to go into how you design those food plots or how you know when to hunt which one. Did you see anything while you were working with him that, that was kind of eye-opening about how he designed these food plots or anything like that? You know, I think one of Bill's toughest challenges and something that people probably didn't even realize, I mean, he, he had a ton of food plots on the property um, and very strategically placed. But one of the things he did throughout the, the early years of the farm is he did timber stand improvement uh, through the entire farm. And actually some of the places was on the second round. He had more natural vegetation and food than almost any other property I've ever seen. And it made it, I think it actually made it more difficult to hunt because the deer had so much natural food that they didn't really feel the pressure to have to come out into any of these food sources, whether it was an annual food plot or a summer food plot. Um, you know, and, and I think that was one of the reasons that he could keep deer uh, or, or so many mature bucks on his property at a given time was because of the bedding area. I mean, yeah, it was a huge piece of property, but 
a deer didn't have to move. He had water, he had shelter, he had native food, he had, you know, supplemental food in the food plots. Um, you know, it was such a, such a different type of property than you're used to seeing in that area. Um, so I thought that was, that was one thing that he really had to overcome. And, and to do that, you know, we, we saw him get more and more aggressive into these micro plots or these four man plots. I think it was a neat thing to show these people that who didn't have equipment, how you can make a quality food plot. But it was also because we were getting in some of these areas closer to bedding areas that you, you probably weren't going to get that much equipment into. Um, and you didn't need to make a full acre plot. You only needed a quarter acre or less just because you were trying to slow them down, moving from a bedding area or these natural food areas into a destination food plot, which would be one of these larger crop fields. Yeah. Yeah. That, that uh, I love the fact that he showed that, like you mentioned, because it does show people that they can, you know, still get a food plot and, and it still can be effective. You don't need huge food plots to enjoy benefits of a food plot. It might be a different benefit. You know, a, a quarter acre food plot isn't going to make the nutritional difference that a, you know, that 20 acres of food plots would make, but you still can, mm-hmm. you still can see benefits. Um, Absolutely. But I want to take a step back to something else you said there. You mentioned the fact that in these sections, these deer didn't need to move very far because they had great food, great cover, and water. And water something that doesn't get discussed a whole lot, I think, because in, in many situations it's kind of a given. But do you ever find yourself mm-hmm. on properties where that is a limiting factor and you do need to supplement it somehow? Um, or is that something that you know people worry about too much, maybe, and putting in water holes and stuff is overboard? What do you think about that? You know, we, we've done some testing recently. We actually just did a video um, that we're going to put out here not too long uh, from the Buck Advisors on, on building a water hole, and we've got some cameras around it. You know, we, we dealt with kind of a mix of both. Um, you know, a lot of these areas in, in the Midwest and Northeast and even the South, you know, you, you get these seasonal uh, water areas. You know, it, it could be a really nice creek, but by the time you get into July, August, the thing, if you're not getting rain, it's going bone dry. Now, you know, fortunately, so far this summer, it's, it's been wet, almost too wet, uh, early into the summer through a lot of the Midwest and into the Northeast. But I, I do think that it becomes something of a, of a limiting factor um, as you get into the later part of the summer and early fall. Now, to go to the extent of putting in a water hole or anything like that, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, a deer could cover you know, 150, 200 acres pretty easily as we get into that later part of the summer if it needs to. Um, that said, you know, it's one of those things that it's, it's kind of like a human. You know, you can go without food for quite a while. Water is a different story. Deer gets most of its water um, when it's consuming its natural plants. So, you know, as long as the water quality is in the plants, um, then it's not as big of a factor. Um, but if we get into a drought condition like we've had a couple of years uh, in the last five, then that, that starts to be a bigger red flag for me. And, and having supplemental water, I mean, I've seen Grant do it um, on his properties with good success. Um, I've had other people kind of, you know, work with these seasonal water sources to create some standing ponds. Um I'm up in the air on it. And, and really the big thing for me, Mark, is the fact that when you create these watering holes and stuff, you stand to create mudflats, which can promote the midges that transmit uh, hemorrhagic disease. And obviously yeah. everybody's been familiar with that in the last few years. Um, so I've been on a big stance of minimizing mudflats. So 
you know, with that, if you can control the mud flats and, and put in a decent water hole, then I'm all for it. If you think you're going to create more exposed mud flats, if it's a drought year um, and you're having mud flats exposed, the odds of you having hemorrhagic on your property are probably pretty good. Um, so I surely don't want to create any more breeding grounds than already naturally exist. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I had, I had not thought of that, but I know more and more, especially like you mentioned back in 2012 and even 13 mm-hmm. to a degree with the, with the horrible EHG outbreaks we had across most of the country, more and more people are starting to think about, you know, how can I start to, in some way, manage to minimize the impact of EHG if it does hit again? Um, and that seems, mm-hmm. like a pretty, it seems like a pretty smart thing to think about if that's something you're concerned about. Is there anything else? that you can think of or that you've actually thought about when it comes to trying to minimize the potential for EHD other than just minimizing those mud flats? You know, as much as I love having mineral blocks out, you know, to me it's more of an attractive thing than a nutritional standpoint. Um, obviously there's, there's some benefits to the, to the micronutrients in some of these blocks. I mean, at this time of the year, salt is something that's a great thing to be able to supplement. Um, when deer are consuming a lot higher water content. Uh, but, you know, anytime you congregate these animals in, into a smaller area, whether it's a feeder or a mineral block or a watering hole, the fact is you, you kind of increase the opportunity for transmitting um, diseases. You know, in, in the case of hemorrhagic, closer density of the deer is going to increase the opportunity for blood mills to be taken by these female midges. So, I think that, you know, in times of knowing, and, and honestly, I wrote an article, uh, I don't know, it's got to be four or five months ago, um, and I think it appeared in one of the more recent deer and deer hunting ones, on would this be a hemorrhagic outbreak year? And and to this day, I still think that we're teeing ourselves up for a really bad year. It's been a very wet spring. It's continued into the first part of the June if it heats up and the water shuts off, I don't, I don't think it's going to be good for a lot of people across the Midwest and the Northeast. And so you're saying, and let me see if I understand this. You're, you're saying that would be the case because you've got so much water now that you've created essentially what will be larger mud flats once the drought hits in July or August and all that dries up, leaving this exposed mud, a lack of water, and you've got more deer moving to the areas where those fewer water sources are and then all these exposed mud flats which allow the, a lot of midges is that is that right 100 percent, right on the head yeah and i mean it's to, that is exactly the conditions that we dealt with in 2012 that led to i mean a massive outbreak we had a very wet spring we formed all these basically seasonal water pools as we hit the drier summer months they all evaporated up leaving these big mud flats behind the ponds and pools that were left congregated deer around it because we were essentially in drought conditions and the result was you know massive deer die-offs across many states um to this day i mean harvests are still suffering from those bottlenecks so you know it's i i fear you know i hope i'm wrong i hope that it stays wet and moist all year and next thing we know it's september and we don't have to worry about it because we started hitting frost um but it seems like we're teeing up for something that could not be uh, at a worse time for some of these states that are already suffering from 2012 and 13 outbreaks. Yeah, geez, I hope that's not the case because, yeah, we're we're just starting to see some of those states now get to be, you know, four years out and hopefully mm-hmm. starting to get some of those mature bucks back. And if we got hit again, that would be 
That would be very disappointing. I, I know for a lot of people. Um, so, be a hammer for sure. Yeah, yeah. So kind of speaking of of deer, the deer herd. I'm kind of curious about how, you know, kind of going back to your situation, either on your new farm or I guess for anyone, um, when you first start on a property, how do you go about trying to evaluate that herd or take inventory of that herd to figure out, you know, okay, Mm -hmm. what kind of bucks do I have here? What types of, what's the structure? What's the age structure, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what are the things you're looking for? And then how do you go about looking for that stuff? I would say that probably the the number one thing I do is always go to my cameras. I mean, you know, it's great to scout and and be out in the woods and, you know, or fields, and I love being out there. But, you know, efficiently-wise and manpower-wise, it's just not something that's going to pan out. Um, Cameras are an amazing tool to be out there 24-7 for us. And, you know, so setting cameras up and doing a camera survey, whether it's an official camera survey and you do the analysis and you try to extrapolate data and stuff, that's that's a whole different ball game. I mean, really just getting out, even doing what I'm doing, I've got five cameras on 30 acres, which if you look at most of the trail camera survey research, it says one for 100, one for 200. I should be capturing every deer within, you know, a 70 mile square radius. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's just a, it, it's trying to, get a snapshot of what the herd looks like and kind of to me especially this time of the year if you're you're getting decent bucks on the camera and it's not to say i mean we're basically right at that end of spring summer home range um piece you know things are going to change here as we get into the fall you know home range are going to change deer are going to disperse um but if you've got some deer on your property at this time and if you've got some bucks that are starting to look pretty good there's a really good chance that you'll at least see those deer early into hunting season. Um, and that's the one thing that's excited me about this place is I've seen, you know, several different bucks and a couple bucks that actually could stand to be something this year, um, especially in a state like Pennsylvania. And, you know, I think that the potential to see those deer early in the hunting season exists. So cameras is probably my easiest way. Plus, I mean, just sitting there and being able to study a photograph, um, uh, or a video, you know, having a camera on video mode is, is something that's a huge advantage uh, to us nowadays as hunters. And I still, I do like to go through and, and do my buck to doe ratio. Um, you know, I like to take on a bigger properties on leases and stuff. I'll look at the actual density and think about how many deer, how many does I need to take out. At least on my 30 acre piece, I'm not too worried about it this year. I, I am concerned that there's going to be a big suction of deer coming in, in in the winter time because of the natural browse that this property has versus around it. So then that begs the question of, you know, do I need to harvest more deer on 30 acres because I'm sucking so many in? Uh, and if I do, how do I do that without, you know, putting too much pressure on the property to, you know, basically ruin it for multiple seasons to come. So it depends on the situation, but I don't think anybody can go wrong with using cameras, whether you use bait or attractant, that's kind of a personal decision. Um, but using those as your scouting tools, I mean, daily life is pretty busy and those things do a pretty good job of, of being able to keep you up to date on what's going on out there. So do you, do you think that the average guy or girl should be trying to perform more of an analysis from the trail camera. So I, maybe your average person right now probably just looks at those pictures to see, Hey, is there a big sure. buck? And is that big buck yep. around my tree stand? Should we all be actually looking at density and age structure and buck to ratio and stuff like that? 
I think it depends on your goals. I mean, if you want to be able to, you know, see or have the ability to hunt bigger deer or even in some places, you know, we just talked about EHC, more deer, then yeah, you, you need to be critical. I mean, one of the things I, I remember doing in 2012 and 13 is, you know, most hunters, even in areas that were stricken by EHD, there was, uh, at least in Missouri areas, there were some uh, low acorn crops. So a lot of the deer were very visible in food plots and people hunted the herd as if nothing happened that late summer, early fall, and they hammered the deer. And so now you had a harvest that was pretty aggressive on top of an EHD, which was probably the worst that the state had ever recorded. And so it makes sense that the next season, it was like, where are the deer at? Um, and one thing I always try to tell people, and, and it doesn't matter if they own a thousand acres or 10 acres is just because, you know, it's legal to shoot four, five, six, seven does doesn't mean that it's appropriate for your property. You know, every property is different in its own right. Um, so, yeah, the state may say, hey, you can shoot five does on your property if you want. But, if, you know, you're not seeing does on the property. They don't exist on the property. Then why would you go out there and harvest five just because the state said it was legal to? Um, it's a case-by-case basis. That really is a big, big play on that. So I don't know if necessarily everyone needs to. I mean, the the, the family that loves to hunt, they, you know, want to have some meat for the freezer. The kids, it's an experience. I don't think they need to be out there analyzing it. I think it's a great educational tool. Um, you know, I'm all for having older age structure bucks. Um, but at the same time, you know, when, when it's time for my child to hunt, if he wants to shoot the first one horn spike that comes through, let them do it. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, it, it, it's different for different people. But if anyone is thinking about managing the herd, then absolutely. You should at least take it in, in more consideration than a passerby of, I'm only scrolling through the next 5,000 pictures looking for big antlers. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more to it that you can see and learn in the pictures that not only will make you a better deer manager, but I think will make you a better hunter at the end of the day. Yeah. So, so you talked about figuring out how many does to kill, and this is a question I think a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. Is there any relatively easy, consistent way for someone to determine the right number of does to kill on their property, or do they need to do a really in-depth trail camera inventory, figure all that kind of stuff out? I mean, I, you know, to be accurate, yeah, they probably need to do a survey. My biggest kind of factor I look at is if I think about in the times that deer have the least amount of food available. So as we get into that, you know, early midwinter period and especially into the early spring about, you know, you're at about the bottom of the barrel in terms of food. And I'll walk around on the property and I start seeing heavy browse lines, no native foods, um, you know, but lots of sign. I, I don't even have to know what your deer density is or your buck to doe ratio is to tell you, you need to kill more deer. You need to kill more does. Um, and it could be seasonal. You know, you could look at me like I'm crazy because in the early part of hunting season, you didn't see a deer on the property, but you, what, what I always try to emphasize with people is you have to manage your herd numbers to match the lowest amount of food and space during the year, which is typically the early spring. So it doesn't matter if, you know, you have hardly any deer early in the season as you get into mid-season. If at the last part of the season into early winter or early spring, you have a massive amount of deer, 
you need to be managing your herd the rest of the year for that number to keep that number down as, as close as possible because that's when you're going to cause the most damage to your property and that's when your deer are going to suffer the most. I mean, your bucks are going to come out of the, the winter and early spring in horrible condition. They're going to have to put four months of resources to repairing the body before they can even think about putting extra nutrition to the antlers. Right, right. Do you think that there are any negative impacts of having too many does on a property, not just from a nutrition standpoint, but on like a like a space standpoint, if you're trying to target older bucks or bigger bucks, have you ever found a property that is just so overwhelmed with so many does that you end up having fewer bucks wanting to hang out just because there's not space? Is that a thing? You know, I, I don't know if that's, I think it could be, um, you know, a property I grew up about an hour from where I live right now. Um, in the summertime, if I take you out there and, you know, July, late July, early August, we'd sit at a telephone pool and watch 50 acres of soybeans. And you would see more bucks, more mature bucks, and probably bucks that you'd never think you're sitting in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, as, as the, you, it, it would pan out that you would think it would be the greatest rut hunting spot ever. And when the rut came, it was the worst hunting ever. And it was because there were so many does on the property that I think that the bucks did not have to work yeah. to find a doe. Um, now, you know, we saw, we saw them spread out really fast as, as the, the season came in. You know, soybeans turned, then they were harvested, um, and bucks seemed to kind of, you know, vanish out besides the stray that would come through maybe on a hot doe. But like I said, they didn't have to move. They didn't have to work to find does. And I think that was probably the most limiting factor. I mean, I grew up hunting a property that was almost non-rut existent. So I remember the first time I was in uh, a stand in Missouri during the rut. And, you know, it was like, ah, things are starting to heat up. And then I'd see a buck chasing a doe. And I'm like, man, this is the rut. Because to me, that was the first time I really experienced what people would talk about when they saw the run. And then it was like the next morning I had like nine bucks come through chasing does. <laughs> and it was like, okay, this is what the rut is. Yeah. Um, and so it was amazing for people to understand, like when I said, you know, I don't even want to think about the, that property during the rut. And they're like, why? There's 15 bucks in a field at night. Well, there was 52 does as well. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing, but I, I do think that there's a space factor. I mean, you think about those old mature bucks outside of the rut, they're, they're solitude animals. Um, you know, you don't see them very often with another buck or doe, unless it's, you know, getting into that early coming out of a bachelor group or as we're transitioning into the rut phase. So I do think that there's a space factor in it. Um, you know, but I also look at some of the research that starts to show that, some of these older bucks in the five, six, seven-year-old age class don't even move that much anymore. You know, they're not doing the thousand to two thousand acre home ranges that a two, three, or four-year-old buck may be hitting. Um, so I think that there's there's multiple cases to say, yeah, it definitely affects it. To me, I would ha rather have a tighter buck to doe ratio than you know having all these adequate does available for the rut because i don't think that rattling works as good i don't think that scents work as good i don't think that grunt calls work as good i think that hunting during the rut is harder and that's that's firsthand experience from a property i hunted for 15 years that should have been theoretically uh, a rut hot spot to kill a big buck every year yeah definitely increased competition for does always seems to lead to better sure 
activity from a hunting standpoint? Absolutely. I mean, the best days in the woods I've had is when one or two does have gone into estrus and there's five to seven bucks fighting for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that to me is when people, when they say they've seen rutting activity, that's what their experience when, and, and anybody that hunts the rut knows that when most of the does are in estrus, we hit that peak estrus cycle. It's about as low as it gets in the woods. <laughs> because the bucks are basically doed up. It's no different than, you know, a gobbler getting henned up in the spring. Um, so you get that kind of lull. You know, it's when those first few are coming in, or even towards the tail end of the rut when there's the last few coming in, that's about when you start hearing people saying, yeah, I've been seeing bucks chasing. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the rut, I actually wanted to bring this up later, but I'll, I'll touch on it now since we kind of segue nice, nicely to it. Um, I've read some stuff from you in regards to the rut, and um, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe when it comes to the rut in most of the country, especially the northern part of the country, you're in agreement with most people when it comes to the fact that it's relatively consistent due to photo period, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess n- number mm-hmm. one, is that is that true with your belief? Yep. Okay. If you're if you're leaning towards the lunar phase, then yes, I'm a much more strong proponent of photo period guiding. Yes. Okay. So then, what my real question then was, okay, if that's the case in the north, I know it's different in mm-hmm. the south, and I, I think I've seen you mm-hmm. write something about that in the past. Could you walk us through what, why the southern rut is different, and what people in the south sure. should be thinking about when it comes to trying to figure out when's the rut, how to hunt it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a completely different ball game. I mean, it, it always, I always make, I laugh about it, I guess, when I hear people talk about, well, like, you know, what five days do you want to take off during the rut? Because when I grew up in the Northeast and, and living in the Midwest, there were, there were four, five, six days that, you know, if you took those off, you were going to experience some pretty crazy rut action. When I lived in Mississippi, and that guy started saying, well, you know, the rut will be good, but you'll, you'll kind of get the drip rut. And I was like, what, you know, what are you talking about? And it was the fact that, you know, one day it could be hot and heavy, then it might be a week before you see any other action. And then you might see a little bit this day and nothing the next. And then the third day, it's just on fire. Um, and, and so you basically see this widespread swath of rutting activity across a lot of the deep south, and in particular, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, even some parts of Georgia. And you see this kind of stretched out rut. And so a couple of things that I, I at least with my research and, and working with a lot of the professors I did, you know, that we came up with some theories. You know, number one is, is probably what I think is the most proficient is the fact that the buck to doe ratio is throwing off some of the rutting activity. So in some of these areas where the buck to doe ratio is so skewed that there's actually bucks missing does and estrus when they basically stay in estrus for 72 to 96 hours they're getting missed because a buck is actually occupied with another doe that's in estrus tending to her so then it has to wait 28 days before that cycle starts again so you start to see where these periods if you stagger them out that you know every so many days there may be a new group of does coming in because these bucks are basically occupied and also a lot of those reasons that in february march you see southern bucks that look like they've just been run through the ringer um, because they're they're instead of a two week rut craze period they're going a two month rut craze period. 
Um, so that's one of the big factors. The other thing that we see is you don't have as definitive of growing harsh seasons uh, in terms of weather and vegetation. So as we think about the north and the Midwest, you know, there's very definitive times of the year. I mean, obviously a doe doesn't want to have to have a fawn early where there still could be the potential of less vegetation and, you know, uh, an early April potentially. Um, as well as the fact that the later we go into the season, the less nutritious the vegetation is, less cover. Very definitive in that piece. As we think about the south, you know, we start getting spring green up in early March. And as the season progresses, we don't have those definitive frosts and things coming in the September, even early October period. I mean, heck, in some of those places in October, it's still 90 degrees. So even though the food quality may not be as good, they're not as concerned with having the vegetation being killed off by frost and freezes. Um, you know, so we would see fawns that would be born, you know, in typical late May, early June time period, but I'd also see fawns being born in September and October. Um, wow. And so it, it's hard to place on which one it would be, you know, is it because they have a, a more broad area that they can cover in terms of the growth and the seasonality um, or is it just because the buck to doe ratio is so out of whack that there are does being bred in February, March, April, instead of being all bred in that November, December time period? Um, so, you know, those are the ones that we looked at. Um, the the big question always remains out there, and, and, and genetics is kind of the dirty word in deer management. You know, nobody wants to say that genetics are different. And and in this case, it's not as much different as it is um, different from the origins of where these deer were coming from. Uh, so, you know, what we tend to see, uh, coincidentally, it, we see different body sizes in a lot of these areas, especially in Mississippi. But we would see groups of deer within a 40 or 50 mile area having significantly different peak breeding dates. And I'm not talking about like a couple of days. I'm talking like a month plus different. Wow. Um, and so it begs the question of how can a deer group that's 50 miles apart have a peak breeding that's a month or a month and a half? And so you start to think about the restocking efforts of the 1900s, deer coming from Mississippi, some coming from Mexico. There's a large group of deer that were brought from Wisconsin that had assumably died from probably a hemorrhagic or something that they couldn't be uh, adapted to, you know, is there some lingering effect uh, or imprint on these deer? And, um, you know, we saw that from our research in Mississippi. We would bring deer from different parts of the state and put them all in a captive research unit. And we would see deer that were from the lower coastal plain of Mississippi that typically had their fawns late in the year, like July, August, into September, when we moved them two hours or three hours north, they still had them in July, August, September, um, even though they were bred in that new area. Those deer from that area would typically, you know, have fawns in June and July. They would still have fawns in June and July. So it, it was kind of weird to see that, you know, somehow there was an imprint on these deer to have this timing of fawning. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of potential factors that could come in there, but it definitely seemed like there was something uh, more uh, environmentally affecting them, uh, but it also could be a genetic thing, too. Hmm. 
Fascinating stuff, although it sounds like maybe terribly frustrating for hunters in that area trying to figure it out Huge. for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I still go to the fact of uh, kind of whether you're in the Northeast or you're in the Deep South, you know, if, you, if you've if you hunted long enough, you can pretty much lay a thumb down on that, you know, rutting activity is going to occur around the same time every year. You know, I know Bill is huge on saying how I think November 7th yeah, is his favorite yeah. day. Like, hey, if you hunt November 7th, it's going to be nail on the head. And, and you know, I've had a similar experience. November 5th to the 7th in Missouri and Kansas, I've had great experience. Um, but it, I think, you know, what determined that is not necessarily – uh, you know, the photo period or the moon phase or genetics. It's just the fact that, you know, every year on a fairly consistent basis, those deer are going to be breeding at that same time. That's, that's their optimal time to breed, knowing that approximately 200 days later is their optimal time to have the fawn. Um, and in the South, it is. It's a lot less predictable. But some guys like that, too, because then it's like, hey, instead of two weeks and I miss the rut, I've got two months to potentially catch this thing. If the last day of the season, I could still be catching rutting activity. I don't know if I necessarily think that's great for the bucks that are, you know, spending all that energy over two months or even the fawns that are potentially being born in August, September instead of June and July. That's a huge disadvantage in their first year. Right. Um, but, hey, it is what it is. Totally, uh, totally, well, not off topic, I guess, but kind of digressing from where I wanted to go, but you just mentioned the fact that, okay, so in some of these areas down south, you've got fawns being born over the course of several months, you know, spread mm -hmm. out. Is that a disadvantage for deer, for fawn recruitment in the southern part of the United States compared to the north? 100%. Because, because yeah. I, I think what... I think the reason why that might be my, my hypothesis was that in the north, when you have fawns all dropping at a relatively consistent short time span, you have this overload of fawns, so pr they cannot be predated as much. So the coyotes have so many fawns, they can't kill them all. While, you know, in the south, if you're spread out, you know, there's, there's more prey spread out over a longer period of time, and it allows predators to have a larger impact. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yep, exactly. It. Yeah. And I, I think that's always been a case in, in the South is, you know, like you said, there's only so many that the predators can consume in the North in a tight, tight time period. Um, and we always emphasize that with people that have fawn recruitment issues. It's like, hey, listen, you know, you may not be able to change the genetics or the environmental effects these deer are, are having, but you can tighten up your buck to doe ratio to try to ensure that breeding occurs in a tighter time cycle. Therefore the fawning occurs in a tighter time cycle. Um, and yeah, I think as these things are stretched out, you know, especially as you get into the mid to later parts of July into August, and you got a couple fawns dropped every day, that coyote or that bobcat is eating every couple of days. So um, I definitely think that's a huge impact and, and probably a, a big advantage, you know, besides cover effects, um, that the North has over and the Midwest has over the South. Interesting. Yeah. As you said that, it just kind of sprang out to me that, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense as to some of the fawn recruitment issues that you see. Um, sure. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. South of 30% down there typically, you know, and, and a lot of that depends on timing and then when you're looking at it, but I would say pretty consistently in a lot of those areas that aren't managing for predation, you know, you're South of 30% in your fawn recruitment rates and, Wow. Most of the time in the Midwest and then the Northeast, you're probably north of 50%. Right. Um, so it's, it's a significant difference for sure. Um, and, and even if you manage for the best habitat, yes, it increases cover. It still plays a, a big, 
a big piece of the game in, in terms of the fawn recruitment and how heavy the predation is. But yeah, the, the longer the, the rut is, the longer the fawning season, the more increase in predation that you're likely to see on the property. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, I kind of want to pivot now to actual hunting tactics. We've talked a lot about, you know, improving a property, understanding a property, how to manipulate a property, maybe how to understand what type of herd you have on the property. But I want to talk about actually, you know, actually killing and harvesting these deer on that property. Because Mm -hmm. of course that's our, our end goal in many cases. Um, The culmination. Exactly. (laughs) So I want to talk about two different situations though, um, that I think you've got experience in both, which is why I want to touch on both. One would be hunting, you know, a piece of private land, maybe a small piece of private land, like what you now have. And then number two, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about public land hunting and maybe compare and contrast the two. Um, So I guess first, when it comes to hunting your own private piece, for anyone who owns their own piece, they've been doing some habitat work, maybe they're trying to manage it for better deer. What are some of the things that you've found based on your own experiences or other people you've worked with that, you know, either what are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing these people make or what are some, some of the things you've seen other guys or yourself do to help maximize your hunting success in that type of scenario? I think probably the, uh, the biggest mistakes that I see is, is over hunting. Um, you know, and that, that could be on a property level, um, but likely on a stand level, um, you know, anybody that, that hunts long enough or even, you know, hunts a specific deer long enough, you you tend to have that hot spot, that hot stand, that hot area. And, you know, I think we all get wrapped up in the pursuit and often don't think about, even if we are using scent elimination clothing and devices and, and trying to get in and out as, as quickly as we can and quietly as, as quietly as we can, the fact is that you've got some pressure in that area. And, you know, for me, it's always been those first couple sits in a new spot where I feel like I have the most success. So, you know, hunting and over hunting a, a stand or a property is probably the number one killer of big bucks to me, not necessarily by the gun or by the bow, but just the fact you're going to boot them off your property and you're never going to see those deer again. Um, so I think that's probably something that, that a lot of hunters need to really focus on is, is strategically, how are you going to hunt this? Um, you know, it's one of those things that we only have so much time. I mean, life is busy, um, but you, you've got to be patient. Um, I mean, that's the key. Anytime you rush something, especially hunting a, a mature buck, odds are not going to be in your favor to, to actually, you know, finish the job. So I think that's something that, that a lot of people need to work on. You know, on a success standpoint, uh, what's really kind of impressed me, um, whether they're, you know, a seasonal-based hunter, um, you know, and, and just out on the weekends or when they can or if they're more serious, is the fact that I see more and more people taking pride in the deer that they don't harvest um, than the ones that they do. You know, the, I feel like, you know, for me, one of my greatest passions growing up was, was going to deer camp, you know, in that tradition. And it didn't matter. I mean, everybody, of course, wanted to shoot a buck. But at the, the end of the day, it was just being there and, and, and experiencing the tradition and the memories you make. And I see more and more people doing that in a little bit different manner. You know, it used to be that you go up and it was more of the bonding with the, the tradition of hunting and the family. Now I see it more and more in the, in the pride of, of property and, and growing and maintaining deer and habitat. And, and even the non-targets, you know, one of the coolest things we've been seeing on our property is 
uh, a, a whole den of red fox. Um, and it's just awesome to be able to see these, these animals going across the property, knowing that, you know, we have a responsibility to maintain that place. And of course, it's the same thing when, when we see a great buck. I mean, to know that that deer is utilizing our property and to figure out, you know, how are we going to maintain them? I, you know, I feel like half the time I'm thinking about more of protecting him and growing him. And then it's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm trying to kill this deer. Right. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's a fine line, but I think it's a really neat connection that more and more people, landowners or leasees are doing um, with the property and with the deer. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. That's one of the most fulfilling aspects of having a property you can, can, that you can consistently hunt or manage, or if you own it even, um, you know, being able to, you know, be a steward in some way and get to, you know, see those deer and those animals and the wildlife flourish there. And then ultimately, you know, have some opportunities to hunt and kill some animals too. But it's, it's pretty cool looking at it holistically um, and seeing everything that happens there and being able to be a positive influence on it is uh that's pretty gratifying yeah absolutely i think that's definitely the coolest part about it and and again you know it's uh it's something that even if you don't succeed in the harvest the fact that that deer is good chance he's going to live to see another day or you know maybe you get shot by a neighbor or someone else and you know you still have to kind of keep your head up and, and think about all the successes you had to get that deer to where it was so i think that's a that's probably the biggest aspect on uh, owning or leasing property that people are taking pride in and to me is a great success yeah now i want to kind of um i want to look at your situation there in pennsylvania on your new property how do you plan on hunting that farm or how are you thinking about going throughout the season i'm kind of curious to see how your what your thought process is are you planning on do you already know where you want to hunt in the early season and the rut and everything have you figured that out yet or are you going to observe and adjust or what's what's the game plan you know it's a constant chess match especially i think this first year i I see us doing a lot of scout slash hunt at the same time you know getting into a position thinking that this is going to be the right spot um and then more than likely having to adjust based on observations over a couple hunts um you know i definitely have my my places in mind that you kind of walk up to the first time and you just you know that there's a good chance this is going to be something when when the rut comes or or even the early season. Um, I think the hardest part about our property that we're going to be dealing with is how are these deer going to react when you know 200,000 plus acres of hardwoods start raining down, you know, acorns and beech nuts. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got them on my place, but it's no different than what's up above. In fact, there's probably more. Uh, off my property than there is on the property. So I don't know if we're going to experience a little bit of a lull at that point, um, or maybe, you know, my place is thick enough that it's actually going to be the bedding area and they're going to be going from that area up to these big mountaintops where a lot of the big oak uh, flats are. You know, if that's the case, now i got to figure out how am I going to hunt 20-plus acres of bedding area without knocking these deer around. So uh, I think definitely the first year it's going to be a learning experience, you know, one that will be exciting, but we'll probably be very cautious, if anything. Um, There's a couple food plots, at least one that I want to put in off a log landing, you know, just to establish something. It'll be an easy one to get to um, without disturbing too many of the deer. And I'm hoping, it, it, you know, my strategy for food plots, especially on a small farm, is always to draw them in the property. So I don't like putting food plots on the property lines. 
I don't like my deer leaving from the center of my property heading out. I want to pull them from my auto outside of the property in, um, especially in a hunting scenario. So that's something that I think this one will work out well with, but I mean, it, it'll be a complete learning experience. I do think that there's a couple areas that'll be, you know, kind of that standard tree, tree stand spot that will likely lead to some sightings. The fact is, I just, I don't know when, um, you know, we may not see hardly any deer until, you know, the end of the November, December, when we start getting into these deer feeding on 70, 80% natural browse. Um, or we could have them like right now, we've got bachelor groups moving through. I just don't know how far and where they're coming from. Um, but I think that's probably the fun part about it is, is going to be learning these behaviors and, and strategies. There will be, for sure, there'll be more failures in the first year than there'll be successes, but uh, yeah. that's just kind of how it goes. That's that's the truth. Like you said, that's the fun part, figuring it out. So, yeah. so shifting now to the other type of hunting that I, I think I've seen you do in the past, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have had a number of really good encounters recently hunting public land, and you've killed several good bucks. Um, that's right, correct? Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, I love hunting public land. It's... Um, it was kind of a forced passion, I guess, to start when, when I was in college and moving around and, and not having private land to hunt. So you kind of left with what you got, and, and I'm not going to stop hunting. So public land would be the opportunity. And, um, boy, it's a different challenge. It's a different beast. I know that it can be frustrating. I mean, there's there's been times uh, in Mississippi hunting public land that I would go, I don't even know, 10, 20 hunts without even seeing a deer. Um, so you, you talk about discouraging. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's definitely the low of lows. But I think when you finally start to get on the deer, um, the, the successes are great. I mean, I've, you know, I've harvested my fair share of deer on public land and, and have had some encounters. I mean, I've, I've killed deer that were, that were poping young and over on, on public land in Missouri. Um, I've encountered deer that were, you know, probably given Boone and Crockett a run. Uh, and it's amazing to think that some of those deer are on there. I mean, I I still think probably to this day, my best harvest on a public land was a a doe in Missouri. I killed with my muzzleloader, um, four years ago, um, that we sent off to Madsons to have the cement manual tested. And it was, it came back as an A plus rating for a 15 year old deer. Wow. Um, and you think about how did a 15-year-old doe survive that long on public land? Um, and, and what did she see and what did she go through? And, and I think that was one of the challenges. Um, but, no, it's, it's a whole different breed of hunting. I mean, talking about run and gun, I mean, bow season is obviously a lot different than gun season. Um, you know, there's some places that are great. I mean, Missouri, when I started, was one of those states that was, was unbelievable and then we had ehd outbreaks and it it threw a curve and pretty much the rest of my hunting strategy for the entire time i lived there um you know but even in to state like pennsylvania where you know we've got eight hundred thousand deer hunters you know i've seen a lot of bucks that are three plus years old um it's just you're not gonna just go out walk 100 yards from the vehicle and sit on a food plot you're gonna you're gonna work for them it's gonna take some time but they're there for sure it just takes a lot of homework and a lot of effort and uh you know some people just don't want to do that but for those that do the opportunities exist 
So let's say for a hypothetical year, let's say you're going into this coming hunting season and you don't have this piece of private land that you now own. You don't mm -hmm. have any leases. You have nothing. You're going to hunt public land. Mm -hmm. What does yep. your process look like from finding a piece of public land to scouting it to actually hunting it? Walk me through a hypothetical year in that situation. Well, you know, it, it's kind of it depends where I'm at. So I'll use Missouri where I was, for example. The, the first thing, usually, again, I go to a map, but the first thing I did is actually search out properties and what were the hunting methods allowed? You know, being a guy who hunts everything from bow to muzzleloader to gun, I mean, I love, I'm a, I'm a bow hunter by heart. Um, you know, I know that anywhere that offers the opportunity to hunt archery only or archery and muzzleloader likely has the chance of having older age class bucks than those that uh, allow rifle hunting. Just simple math of pressure um, from, from local hunters during the hunting season. So I first went out and identified the areas that were bow hunting only or ones that offered um, bow and muzzleloader only. And typically those were the areas that I saw the best deer and, and had my best chances at deer. Um, so, I, you know, again, it's a game of, I think the number one factor on public land is hunting pressure. You know, you can avoid the hunting pressure um, or use it strategically to your advantage the odds of success or, or at least encountering a good deer are, are much greater. Um, you know, I think as we get into the actual hunt itself, you know, half of it's just luck, <laughs> you know, coming on it. But I think using, using the skills of scouting um, are never more tested. Um, finding scrapes and, and food sources and, and moving, always being mobile and adjusting. Um, during the season. I mean, I had spots that I knew when I put a stand in it, there was no way I was going to hunt it year round, but that stand was probably going to end up in five different trees by the end of the season. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most important things. And one of the things that most people don't do is, you know, they'll, they'll get in a place that they've seen bucks in the past and there's a good chance they'll run into them again. But, you know, early season movements are a heck of a lot different than rut movements, a heck of a lot different than gun season, and then especially after gun season and what, you know, what's left over. Um, and, and I still think to this day, I've had more success hunting the late season, or at least more encounters hunting the late season on public land than I have any other time of the year. Um, just for the fact that I think deer are more predictable in their patterns um and there's a lot less hunters once gun season ends hmm. so are you finding then i mean it seems like once you get into that late season these deer obviously have been pressured significantly over the mm -hmm. course of the past couple months are you finding mm -hmm. these deer in just the hardest to reach hardest to find parts of a public land parcel then it depends on the timing. I mean, if it's directly after, you know, a gun season, yeah. I mean, they're buried in there pretty good, and you know, but at that time of the year, you know, deer's got to move, a deer's got to eat. So, you know, they're, they're going to be mobile. It's just finding them and accessing. Um, as you get later into the year and the pressure is eased up for, you know, a couple weeks, um, you start to see them moving back into the, their areas. Actually, what I think is, is early season. I mean, like, summer patterns to where they're getting back closer to food they're not moving nearly as much you know and it's very patternable in that it they're going to be moving probably in the early morning and especially in the afternoon and that's about it um so i think that that you kind of use it to your advantage 
and that if you knew where they were moving in their late summer, early fall patterns, by the time the season's ready to close, they're probably pretty darn close back onto those patterns. Yeah. Hmm. One of those, uh, do any one of the bucks you've killed, you know, recently in Missouri on public land, would any one of them be an interesting example to walk us through how that actually happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can, I guess, try to word that again for me. So, yeah, so I'm just curious to hear about one of the specific bucks that you killed on public land, whether it be Missouri or one of the other places. I'd just be interested to hear about that yeah. specific situation, you know, how, how you ended up sitting there, sure. why you sat there, how it happened. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a place, um, it was actually a city owned property. Um, that was open. It was a bow hunting program. They were trying to reduce the number of deer within the city limits. Um, and so it was an archery only. Uh, I had scouted it. It was only 250 acres, but it had um, some state park that was a border on it. So, you know, there were certain areas that I figured deer were likely going to be in. And, and my instinct, again, thinking, you know, not only is it bow hunting, but there's a state park that was not hunted at all. The potential for age structure was there. Um, and so I had done my, one of my, and I still use it to this day, my biggest strategies is I try to identify the bedding area, or at least close to the bedding area right away. And then I start, you know, working my way back in a funnel situation. And then as the season starts, I get increasingly aggressive getting closer and closer and closer to that bedding area, pretty much to when it's rut, I'm, I'm in their wheelhouse. I'm in the bedroom um, at that point. And so for this, this particular deer, there were, there were two other bucks that I was actually after uh, ahead of this deer. There was a, a mature, I don't know, it was probably over mature and it was 130, 140 inch deer. Um, there was a, a, what I called a giant 10. And at that point for public land, it was the biggest deer I'd ever seen. It was 160 inch, uh, 12 point. Wow. And then the buck I ended up killing, which was a, just a solid 127 inch eight point, but probably a four year old deer. Um, he had been getting more and more visible, um, on trail camera. And so it was one of those deer that at 2 a.m. he was there pretty consistently. Then it was like 4 a.m. Then it was 5.30. And as we were getting to the, the rut, I knew in that area it was getting more and more consistent. So I set up in an area that was basically um, right off of his bedding area where I thought his bedding area was. And just so happens it was one of those times where I had a hot doe come in. Um, and, you know, it was probably getting towards the, the peak of the rut. And, uh, you know, doe came in, bucks were chasing her, and it, it was a neat situation in that every time I rattled, I would draw in bucks, but if I grunted, I had no response whatsoever. Hmm. Um, and it, it almost made it difficult because I was getting, I was in a cedar thicket, so I was getting bucks so close that, you know, rattling, obviously, I had more movement. And that's what I had to do to get them into bow range. The grunts just were ineffective. Snort wheezes were ineffective. Um, and so this, this year I had ended up, I, I let a huge rattling sequence out after seeing about five or six different bucks that all basically after in this area for this one doe and just so happened to turn around behind me and, and from the bedding area that I thought he was in, um, he came cruising through at about 10 AM um, and, and made a good shot on him. But, you know, I had seen that deer uh, on camera 
since September, um, and this was in the middle of November, but it was one of those places that I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen but probably seven deer in 20 hunts on the property, um, and, and most of them does and fawns. I, I had seen one shooter buck before then uh, that I never got a shot at. But other than that, I didn't even seen a buck in person on camera at night. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, it was it was very reassuring that the fact of just knowing they're in the area and again that rut period, um, knowing that at any time it could happen and they could pop out right there and and that's pretty much what he did. Yeah, trail cameras are definitely a great tool for just keeping the optimism alive. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh man, well that's an awesome story. That sounds like a heck of a hunt and killing a. A four-year-old, nearly 130-inch eight-pointer on public land. That is that is awesome. So it was awesome. It was the biggest deer I'd killed with with anything to date, and uh, at that time, and it was one of those ones that kind of, you know, set me on fire again. I guess, uh, especially thinking about all the time and putting the stand on public land. Oh yeah, that's that's as good as it gets, I would think. So, yep. Jeremy, we are, we've been talking your ear off here for a pretty good time here, so we're going to have to wrap it up. But I guess before we do that, um, you know, this has been really interesting stuff. I know our listeners are going to want to hear more from you. So where can they go if they want to get more information from you, learn more about sure. what you're doing, anything like that? So we, we are still producing videos pretty frequently at thebucketvisors.com. Um, we always try to do something really cool, educational, informational. That's It's basically in real time, you know, what, what people are going to be dealing with on their properties, whether that's a management thing uh, or hunting strategies or actually hunts from the field. Um, and we, we get those out pretty regularly. I'd say we have between, you know, one and three a week, depending on the time of the season. Um, so we do a lot on that. You know, I still write a lot of articles for deer and deer hunting. And then also I've got, um, basically a weekly or, or bi-weekly depending on the seasonal, uh, timing on outdoorchannel.com as well under, uh, it's a column called everything deer and basically cover everything deer again, trying seasonality. You know, my big thing is I, I want people to be reading and, and watching what they could be doing on their own property at that time. Um, it's probably the best way to relate to what's going on out there in the deer woods at any given time. So those are basically the best ways and at least on a deer standpoint to get, to get uh, into me. But, you know, with Stone Road Media, we're at, we're at the ATA shows and at the shot shows and we're doing expos. Um, you know, we're there with our deer grow product as well. So, you know, I, I always welcome guys to, to grab me and, and talk at, at any of the events, QDMA events, whatever they might have to, to talk deer. It's uh, very rare that I'll ever turn down talking deer, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad that's the case because it, we were able to get you here to talk deer, and this was uh, an interesting, fascinating conversation. I uh, I enjoyed it, and I'm even it probably was not didn't think it was possible but i'm even more stoked to get deer hunting now than i was about two hours ago so so thank you for that jeremy i appreciate it mark anytime and it was great to be on and and hopefully we can do it again sometime that sounds great good luck this season all right thanks buddy all right well before we wrap it up a few quick reminders first be sure to check out the new 100 percent wild podcast our latest episode featured former pro baseball player jim tomey and we discussed hunting from ground blinds and much more so i think you guys will really enjoy that one 
We also need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So, big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeremy as much as I did. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.